Good morning, everyone. My name is Ben. I am one of the pastors here. Good to be with you all. Um, we're going to be in Ruth chapters 3 and 4 today. Uh, typically, I don't do much review of the previous week, but just in case a few of us forget or perhaps weren't here last week, I'm going to do a quick review of where we're at in the story. Ruth, Ruth, from beginning to end, is a narrative. It is a story meant to teach us something about the character of God. So last week, we covered um, the life of Naomi, who, with her husband Elimelech, went to the land of Moab because there was a famine in Israel. The larger context is it was in the time of the judges, which was a wicked time in the history of Israel, um, and things were getting worse and worse. Uh, Famine comes, and so they flee to the land of Moab. While there, Naomi's two sons, Malon and Chilion, get married to Moabite women, and they're there for 10 years. However, Elimelech and his two sons both die, and so Naomi returns to Israel And she says, I left full, but I've come back empty. And we saw in the text how the Lord cared for her through the love of Ruth, her daughter-in-law, and also the provision and protection of a redeemer named Boaz. And we're going to continue in that story today to see how it all ends up. But before we do any of that, I'm just going to pray for us one more time. Heavenly Father, we do praise you as a God who is faithful, even when we can't see it, who's faithful to us to keep your promises, even when we don't see how you're going to be able to do it. You're always doing a million more things than we're ever aware of. And so as we consider the life of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, help us to see and to hear and to know your goodness and your love for us. Pray for me as I preach this text, Lord, that I would glorify and honor you in the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, and that anything that would be untrue or unhelpful would pass away, but your word would stand. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In 1914, the world was in the midst of its first world war. There was bloody conflict, siege warfare, or trench warfare, which if you know anything about, was particularly bitter, particularly violent, particularly awful. And at the end of 1914, it didn't look like things were going to get any better, but on Christmas Eve, in France, there was Christmas carols and songs being played on the local church organs and bells, and as the soldiers heard it, they come out of the trenches And they see each other, and they, in various places along the battle lines, they actually played soccer together. They exchanged gifts. They greeted one another. This was known as the Christmas truce of 1914. And so we see a happy ending at the the end of a long year of conflict. And it's it's a bit of a happy ending that defies expectations. Surely we would never expect two warring armies to look across the trenches at one another and say, you know what, let's have a brief truce. But that's what they did, and it's a surprise happy ending because it subverts our expectations. Now, this truce doesn't last, and the war continued, but this is the kind of surprise happy ending that we see in our story today. And as we go through our text, I want us to focus on one main point, one main exhortation 
And it's simply this, hope in Christ because with Him the best is yet to come. Hope in Christ because with Him the best is yet to come. We're going to walk through chapters 3 and 4 scene by scene and pull out about four applications from our text to inform the way Christians should think about living and to encourage us to hope in and live in Christ. Those four supporting points There's a lot of P's, forgive me, I'm a Baptist. They are this, plan while trusting in providence, plan while trusting in providence, proceed in faith, prepare for plot twists, and the Lord provides redemption. But we're going to start in the first scene of our story today with Naomi's plan. This is chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and it says this, Then Naomi... Ruth's mother-in-law said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But as he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she, Ruth, replied, all that you say, I will do. The then at the beginning of this text comes immediately upon the heels of Ruth working in Boaz's field until the end of barley harvest. So Ruth and Naomi are in Moab with Elimelech's family for 10 years. They come back just as the harvest was beginning. Ruth has been working in Boaz's field for about two to three months. So this isn't just the next day after Ruth finds Boaz's field. It's after a few months of her working there under his provision and protection. So Naomi has seen Boaz's character and the way that he's cared for them, both by allowing Ruth to work his fields. And Boaz has seen Ruth's character being faithful to work this entire time in order to support herself and Naomi. And so Naomi is, is aware of all these things and God's provision for them through Boaz and is, is keenly aware of both their character. And she, she thinks to herself, my daughter-in-law, not even daughter-in-law, my daughter should have a place of rest. She's concerned about her future. As we talked about last week, widows are extraordinarily vulnerable in the ancient Middle East. There's no one to protect them physically. There's no one to work the fields. They're they're particularly vulnerable. Evil men can easily take advantage of women in these circumstances. So Naomi's concerned for her daughter. She's concerned for her future. She wants to think of a way, provide a, a way for her to be taken care of. And she also believes that Ruth is entitled to everything a true daughter would be entitled to including a kinsman redeemer. Now, Ruth is a Moabite by birth, but as we established last week, is an Israelite by faith, and so she deserves a true inheritance, including someone to redeem her. Previously, Naomi had encouraged Ruth to go back to her parents, her mother's home in Moab, in order to find a husband. She prayed to the Lord that she would find a husband, a place of rest, a means of provision. But Ruth refused and came with her. And so now Naomi's starting to see perhaps there's a way for that prayer to be answered here. 
perhaps I, I, I see a way, I see the person of Boaz as a potential source of redemption. And an application for us is that it's not illegitimate to try and do something in addition to prayer. It's not illegitimate to pray for something and then pursue it through means. We don't have to wait passively for events to happen. We can seize the initiative when an opportunity presents itself. One common example that we've all experienced is when we're sick, we don't merely just pray, though we do that because the Lord heals, but we go to the doctor. The Lord uses means. He uses human agents for the good of his people and through common grace. So Naomi's thinking that way. She said, I prayed to the Lord to provide a place of rest for Ruth. And now I'm starting to see that there might be a way to do that. Her plan is very specific. It's wrapped up in the person of Boaz. Boaz is their relative, and as we said, he's the one that's been providing and protecting Ruth as she worked in his fields. But to truly appreciate Naomi's plan and Boaz's Ruth in this story, we've got to get a little bit in the weeds with Israeli culture and context and leviterate marriage, which is a phrase I did not hear until preparing for this sermon. Leviticus 25, 23 through 55, which I'm not going to read, uh, it outlines a variety of ways in which family members can redeem the property of other family members who have fallen into economic hardship. In other words, if I fall into massive amounts of debt, a family member can come on my behalf and redeem the property for me so that I can maintain it. Land for Israelites was seen as a variety of things. One, a provision of food and wealth, right? This is how we make our living. This is how we survive. And two, our future in the land among God's covenant people. Land is crucial. It's both sustenance now and our family's future later. So the idea of losing your land in perpetuity was horrifying to the Israelites. And therefore, Leviticus has a way for family members to redeem property on their behalf. And there's even, there's even rules around the fact that land can't be sold in perpetuity within Israel. It has to return to the original family at some point. This is, this is the importance of land in Israel. So that's one. There's this, this principle of redeeming a property. And there's also precedent for women to inherit and inherit property in the Old Testament. Numbers 27, 5 through 11 talks about the daughters of Zelophehad, who's given his inheritance, his land, his property when he passes away. So just because you're a woman does not mean you're not entitled to inheritance. So here's a second principle here. We see one, there's the redemption of land. Two, women are not excluded from receiving their inheritance. Finally, there's a principle for ensuring a, name, a family's name lives on. This is found in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6. I will read this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So these principles, one, redeeming the land, two, that women can inherit, and three, we want to continue the line, the family name on in Israel, are three 
kind of principles that are going to come into play in our story. And this reflects the emphasis of the Old Testament on providing for families that fall on hard times. We also see that the scriptures want family names to continue on in Israel. As I said, family and land are inextricably linked together. This is their future together. So this is the cultural context. These are the principles that are at play. Sounds fairly alien to all of us under the new covenant. Like, you know, like this is a little, you know, we're not at swimming in these waters as much. But for the Israelites, this is the contextual cultural air that they breathe. But this helps us give a picture of what Naomi is thinking. She sees an opportunity to provide financially for her daughter by redeeming her land through Elimelech. And she sees an opportunity to continue Elimelech's name through Ruth. So she encourages Ruth to seize the moment. She's seen how Boaz provides and honors the Lord. She trusts his character. But more than that, she's seen how Boaz doesn't just uphold the letter of the law, but the spirit. Remember, recall in chapter 2, we saw that while it's mandated that owners of fields leave food behind on gleanings for sojourners to come and pick up off the ground, Boaz does more. He pulls full sheaves out of the barley harvest and leaves it for Ruth to pick up. So it's, it's more than just the letter of the law. He goes beyond what's required. He gives more than what Ruth is entitled to. So Naomi knows that, and she's seen it. And so she has these principles in mind, and she knows Boaz's character and his willingness to do more than what's required. And she also knows that Ruth... And Boaz are going to have to have a conversation that's not observed by the entire working fields, right? So when they work the field, there's lots of workers, young men, young women, lots of people working. We saw this in chapter 2, and Naomi thinks to herself, well, Boaz and Ruth need an opportunity to converse about marriage without an audience. And so she comes up with this plan that we see in verses 2 through 5. She informs Ruth that Boaz is winnowing barley tonight on the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself go down there, uncover his feet, wake him up, have a conversation. All right, some points to pull out from here. Why, why does Naomi tell Ruth to, to wash and anoint herself? I think what's going on here is this is a way to communicate that Naomi, uh, Ruth's time of mourning is over. She's a widow, and she has a time of grief. And perhaps this is part of the reason why Boaz is not overly forward in trying to engage her or redeem her, marry her, whatever. She's in mourning. She's lost her husband. But by washing and anointing and putting on her best clothes, she's, she's saying, she's signaling, my time of lament, my time of mourning is over. I am a marriageable woman. Second, the threshing floor, this, this threshing floor where Boaz is bringing in the harvest. This is a time of celebration. We've worked hard all year. We've worked hard in harvest, and now we get the goods. We get the food. We're a, typically, this is at the top of a hill. We're threshing. The wind's blowing through, separating chaff from wheat, so forth and so on. The food is coming into the barns. We're gonna make, the Lord has been kind. This is, a, this is a good time. Boaz is going to be predisposed to be in a good mood. But then we cover a, a kind of odd detail. So... Naomi tells Ruth, okay, uncover Boaz's feet and then just wait there. It's weird. I don't, why is that detail in there? 
So when you're threshing, you're at the top of a hill because the wind is going to separate some of the crop for you. It's going to assist you in your work, right? And so after Boaz has finished his work, he's tired, he's had a drink, he's feeling good, he's going to sleep, he's still at the top of this hill where the wind is blowing. So really practical advice here. Uncover his feet, the wind will blow, his feet will be cold, and he'll wake up. Thereby creating opportunity for the two of you to converse. Now, we have to admit, this plan might not sound that great in the sense of, like, you've got a guy who's been working all day, he's had a little bit of drink, now he's going to sleep. You're going to get in your best clothes, you're going to wake him up in the middle of the night, and you're going to be like, hey, let's get married. This could go wrong in a variety of ways. It could go wrong because Boaz is a racist and thinks, I don't want this Moabite woman near me. It could go wrong because Boaz think, thinks she's trying to do something, commit adultery, or seduce him in some way that's inappropriate. It could go wrong because he sees her as presumptuous, saying, who are you working my fields? How can you propose marriage to me? You're a woman. I'm a man. You're, you can't propose. That's my job. This plan doesn't, on the surface, does not, in terms of worldly wisdom, doesn't look very good. But Naomi knows the character of Boaz, and she knows the character of Ruth, and she's seen how the Lord has provided for her in the midst of her loss. And so she trusts the most precious thing in the world to her, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, into the hands of Boaz because she's seen he's a man of character. And she trusts the Lord. The, the Naomi that we see now is different from the Naomi three months ago who went away full and came back empty and is bitter. Literally said, call me Mara, call me bitter. That's changing. She's seeing how the Lord has provided. And so while objectively this might look like a risky plan to us, Naomi knows it's not truly a risk because she knows the people involved. Ruth, for her part, agrees to the plan. All you say, I will do. Not much dialogue there, but she's... She's ready. The, the, the takeaway I had while reading this text today was the thing that struck me was a really pragmatic and practical question, which is, how do, what's our plan? What's our plan to pursue the calling that God has for us? I know for me, I have a, a tendency to let life happen to me particularly in things like parenting. There's a new challenge every day. The kids are doing all sorts of different stuff. But for parents, what's our plan to raise children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? How are we going to inculcate Christ-like character in our kids? As employees, how are we going to work for the glory of God? Not just do what our bosses tell us, but truly work in a way that we are salt to the watching world around us, that we are going to work as unto the Lord not as unto man. What's our plan for that? If we're retired, what's our plan to make the most of the time? The Lord has gifted us with retirement. I no longer have to work 40 to 50 to 60 hours a week. What's my plan for using that time? As members of Emmanuel Baptist Church, what's our plan for helping each other to heaven? What's our plan for loving one another? What's our plan for encouraging one another, for helping each other when we fight sin? Regardless of where you are in life, the Lord has placed you where you are and when you are 
with responsibilities and obligations and callings on you. And so you've got to have a plan. You've got to think about how you're going to pursue what the Lord has put in front of you. We do these things by faith, but we live out our faith through plans of action. Consider Hebrews 11, which is sometimes called the Hall of Faith. It talks about Abel's sacrifice, Noah's building of the ark, Abraham's moving to a whole new place that wasn't home, Moses' midwives who spare Israeli children when they're supposed to be killed, Moses who chooses to be a Hebrew instead of a prince of Egypt, Rahab who hides Israeli spies instead of betraying them, and on and on. All of them had to plan the way that they were going to live out their faith. So let us likewise plan to act in faith, like Naomi and Ruth. But while we plan, we can't just plan. We have to act. We have to proceed in faith, which is what we see in Ruth 3, 6 through 18. So she, Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. But when Moaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if, you, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Naomi replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For that man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So verses 6 through 10, we see all is going to plan. It, Ruth is able to lay down next to Boaz's feet. He's feeling good. He's falling asleep. He wakes up, presumably because his feet are cold. Uh, but there's a little bit of a surprise. There's somebody at his feet, and he says, okay, who are you? They can't see each other. Ruth announces herself and does nothing less than propose marriage. She calls on him to fulfill the principles of leveret marriage that we covered before. We, he calls... She calls on him to fulfill the promises of redeem the land, redeem Elimelech's name, provide a name for him and the dead in Israel. And she uses Boaz's own language against him. Boaz prayed for her, may the Lord cover you with his wings. And she goes, yes, I do, want, I do ask for the Lord to cover me with, my, with his wings. Turns out you're those wings. His own language put back to him. And Boaz responds incredibly well. You see, Ruth 
is asking Boaz to continue being the Lord's agent to protect her. He's already provided a place to work. He's already been more generous than he needed to be. And so Ruth's asking her, asking him to go one further. He's, she's asking him to be a redeemer. Basically saying, you have acted as the Lord's provision for me, his redemption for me. Keep going. Keep doing it. Do it more. I don't know that there's a greater compliment. She calls him to even more Christ-like character. And Boaz responds with something that might sound a little strange for our modern ears. He says that Ruth's last kindness is greater than the first. And the first kindness is her willingness to come back from Moab with Naomi, provide for her by working in the land, loving her in spite of all worldly wisdom that says, go home. But now, Boaz is saying this, this act of love is even more. What, is, what does he mean? He's not talking about Ruth's love for him or her desire to get married, but rather that this is a continuation of Ruth's love for Naomi. She already left her home, came with her, works on her behalf to provide for her, and now she's sacrificing any opportunity to marry anyone else in order to provide an heir for Naomi and Elimelech, that her family name may continue. So her marriage, her pursuit of marriage with Boaz is in service of her love to Naomi. And Boaz comments on this and then says, the entire town knows that you're a worthy woman. Her character shines. The New Testament says to women, let your adornment not be external. Ruth is living that out. It's her character that makes her incredibly attractive. So here we are in the plan. Ruth has come along. She's the midnight meeting. Everything's gone well. Boaz responds positively. So far, so good. But every good story has a bit of a twist. You see, there's a redeemer who's more closely related to Naomi and Elimelech than Boaz. So Ruth will be redeemed, but the question is, by who? By Boaz or this nameless, faceless redeemer? Well, we'll have to see. In the meantime, Boaz continues to show his honorable intentions. He proceeds in faith. He's, it's safe to say he intends to marry Ruth if it's possible, and he sends her home with even more material blessing, even more barley. There's a bunch of reasons for this. One is to bless them, but two to give her a reason to be up so early in the morning so the townspeople might not wonder, might not gossip about her character. It keeps her, her reputation and her character above reproach. Which leads us to a, a very natural question about this text, which is, did something happen here? Did they fall into adultery? Did they fall into sin as two unmarried people? I think lots of modern commentators, who I don't trust, would say, you know, yeah, that's definitely what happened. It's two people alone at night, of course. Of course. So how do we know that that didn't happen? That some illicit affair didn't go on? A few reasons. The Bible is not bashful about showing the character flaws of people in it. Consider King David, who murders somebody and then essentially forces himself on a woman. Think about other characters, whether it be Abraham pretending his wife is his sister just to avoid any pain. Again and again, Jacob, the deceiver, we can go throughout all the Old Testament. The Bible's not shy about showing us the dark side of human nature, even in its 
heroes. But there is danger here. The text even uses some language that can be considered suggestive. But we know that they're reliable because we've seen their Christ-like character throughout. Again, this is why Naomi's not afraid to send Ruth to Boaz in the middle of the night. She knows his character. And the whole town knows Ruth's character. And also, the Bible says that they don't. And so for those reasons, we, can have, we have confidence and we know that where many would have stumbled, Boaz and Ruth remain above reproach. So as we consider Boaz's response to Ruth, we can think about how, how we would apply this. There's a variety of ways, but there's, there's one that struck me as I prepared this week. It's as, as Ruth is asking Boaz to answer his own prayer, may the Lord spread his wings over you, over me, as you ask the Lord to do, I wonder how we might try to be part of God's answer to our prayers. So for instance, when we see someone who's struggling, we ought to encourage them. And I don't just mean praying for them, but actually physically going to them and saying, hey, I've seen evidences of God's grace in your life. Let me describe the ways in which I've seen that. No one is over-encouraged. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. See, Ruth is encouraging Boaz to, to raise to even greater Christ-like heights. We ought to do the same to one another. We ought to encourage one another to pursue Jesus. And Boaz responds in reassurance. He reassures her. Her heritage as a Moabite has no bearing on his care for her. Her character speaks for her. No background should bar our own love, no heritage, no history, no family baggage should prevent our own welcoming and love for people. So another principle for us here is the fact that Ruth was a Moabite, someone who's culturally different, ethnically different. None of that matters to Boaz. It's a reminder that the promise of God for his covenant people was never about genetics. It's about faith in God. So we plan while trusting in providence. We proceed in faith. But we also have to prepare for plot twists because there's something, there's an obstacle here. There's a redeemer who's closer in relation to Elimelech than Boaz, and he would have the right to redeem Ruth and the property before Boaz would. And that's our next point. We have to prepare for plot twists. We might have a plan, we might proceed in faith, but rarely do things in life go the way that we expect them to. Let's read chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. 
There is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he, the other guy, said, I will redeem it. All right, pause. If you're Ruth watching this exchange and you hear this other guy say, yeah, I'll redeem it, like where your heart just drops. You don't know this guy. You don't know his character. You know Boaz who has been taking care of you for months. And you're like, oh, no, where is this going? And note that and that fear and anxiety would be understandable, but God is still providential. God is still in control. Notice another detail. We talked about how Naomi and Ruth came back to Bethlehem during the time of harvest and auspicious time where there's food aplenty. But here, the redeemer that they need to talk to happens to come into town at the same time that Boaz is sitting in the gate. Yet again, God is sovereignly orchestrating events to produce good for his people. Now, the gate in Old Testament Israel is where all the town business happens. This is where all the stuff, all the happenings, all the social club, all that stuff is going to happen in the gate. And Boaz calls 10 elders from the city to bear witness. So this is, this, we're in like legal transaction. Like we're going to have a, we're going to have a business discussion. These people are going to be witnesses. We need to talk about it. And so Boaz informs this other redeemer, like, hey, Naomi's come back. We assume that the land was rented out while she was gone, but now the land is returned to her as, as a widow of the deceased. It is hers. She's going to, you know, she needs to let it go. Do you want to redeem it? Do you want to buy it on her behalf? And he, the, this nameless redeemer says, well, yeah, I will redeem it. Now, why? Well, he gets to increase his land holdings. He gets to increase his wealth. Makes all the sense in the world. Yeah, sure, I'll take it. I'll take that land. I'll, I'd love to add to my holdings. What we see in this nameless redeemer is something that we saw in Orpah, we're seeing a juxtaposition, a comparing of two. We see Boaz, who's going above and beyond the letter of the law, and then we see this nameless redeemer who wants to fulfill the letter of the law for his own benefit. And this is, this is wise by worldly standards. Yeah, I, yes, it makes pragmatic economic sense for me to add to my holdings. Yeah, that sounds good. Remember, Orpah, when she's encouraged by Naomi to go back home, says... Yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to go home into my mother's house and try to find a husband in the land of Moab. This is, that makes all the sense in the world. Why would I go somewhere I don't know anybody and I have no means of provision? But again, we see this comparison of worldly wisdom to God's wisdom. There's a reason we don't know this faceless redeemer's name. And we do know Boaz's. This Redeemer's name is lost to history because he was not willing to go beyond the letter of the law. Now, we're not God, and things are often not going to go according to our plan, and it doesn't always look the way we think it's going to look. And so that feeling that Ruth must have had, that's that feeling of the stomach dropping out the bottom of our, our, our feet, that's very natural and human, but we can have trust that the Lord is going to work things out for the benefit of his people. And so in all of this, in Ruth and Naomi's story, there's a happy ending, a redemption beyond our wildest dreams. It's our last point. The Lord provides redemption. So we just, Naomi, or sorry, Ruth is terrified because this guy said he'll redeem it. And she's like, oh no. So now we're going to continue in verse 5. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. 
Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he takes off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and all that belonged to Malon and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, and for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. As soon as Boaz says the Redeemer will gain Ruth in addition to the land, he's out. Why? He says it would endanger his own inheritance. His own, he has children, presumably, who would inherit in his name. And so to take on another wife who could then have a, a firstborn son who would then claim his inheritance and Elimelech's inheritance, he says, no, I want to keep what is mine in my family. It's an inherently self-interested, self-serving, selfish act. He's only thinking about himself. He doesn't value Ruth's worthy character. The whole town knows that she's a worthwhile woman, but this guy doesn't care. He's not interested in hesed love. Hesed is a Hebrew word that's throughout this text. It's persistent, ever-loving kindness. It's often the word used with God's covenant love. The Jesus Storybook Bible says, never giving up, always and forever, never stopping, love. It can't be, it just continues more than worldly wisdom would say that it should. So because this nameless redeemer is acting in a self-interested way, he won't image Christ in doing more than what's expected We don't know his name, and he experiences far less of God's blessing. But Boaz is the opposite. And through Ruth's redemption, the Lord provides a husband for Ruth. This prayer that Naomi had in the first chapter, find a husband in a place of rest and security, Boaz provides that. But it also provides a wife for Boaz, a worthy woman who he loves, who he's seen act in a way that's honorable, 
And together they're going to have children. And it also provides an heir for Naomi and Elimelech by extension. It's a blessing not just to Naomi who's alive, but to Elimelech who's died. And I just want to camp out here for a bit. Naomi wasn't wrong to feel devastated in chapter 1. She wasn't wrong to think that the Lord is control over her life and her tragic circumstances. She rightly said that the Lord is sovereign over all of these things. Like we said last week, when we're in the midst of bitter trial, a natural question to ask is, God, where are you? But the ending of this story shows that the Lord does provide. Through Ruth and Boaz, he provides protection, a home, and an heir to Naomi. So where is God? He's there. He's working on behalf of his people. So these are the things that Naomi sees. She sees the Lord be faithful to her. And even the town bears witness how Ruth is more than seven sons to Naomi. We probably wouldn't get this, but this is extraordinarily high praise. Seven is a number of completeness. In an Old Testament Israel, the idea of two parents with seven sons was considered the idyllic family. This is perfect. This is what you want. You have vast, many, many sons to perpetuate your name and your inheritance, work the land, provide for you in your old age. And so the town is saying, Ruth, this non-Jew, daughter-in-law, is more valuable than all of that. And they, they point to the Lord as the source of this blessing. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And thanks for Ruth, who loved you. And so Naomi takes the child and puts him on his, her lap. And the, the text uses the word nurse, but it, essentially you, you could say foster mother or second mother or just a tight, intimate relationship between Naomi and this boy. So Naomi died knowing that the Lord had redeemed her and provided for her and her family. She died knowing that the Lord had answered her prayer for Naomi. She could truthfully testify to the Lord's faithfulness and covenant love. The Lord demonstrated this in spades through Ruth's persistent love, the timing of arrival during harvest, through Boaz's generosity and his redemption of Ruth. And so Naomi could rightly say, I have suffered deeply, and none of this blessing wipes away the hard history of what I've had to walk through. I will never be the same because I lost my husband and two sons. She'll never be the same. Yet she can still testify to the Lord's faithfulness by all of this provision. But some of the Lord's blessing, through her suffering, Naomi never even gets to see. We ask the question, where are you, God? And in Naomi's life, he's always near, providing in ways that are seen and unseen. And we recognize that suffering is never pointless for the Christian. But not only is it not pointless, he's doing far more with it than we can ever imagine. Through Naomi's suffering, the Lord also provides a king for Israel. We see this in the genealogy. Boaz is an ancestor of King David, recall at the beginning of this series, we talked about how this is the time of the judges. Israel has fallen, fallen into wickedness. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Oppression, immorality, evil is flourishing throughout the land. A famine comes, and Deuteronomy talks about famine as being a divine punishment for a wicked 
people. But the Lord plans to bless all of Israel through Naomi's trials. How? Because of King David. What puts an end to the wickedness of Israel? King David. He rules more justly than had been, not perfectly, but more justly than what had been happening in the time of Judges. So Naomi never even sees that. She's long dead when King David comes to the throne, and yet the Lord knew and planned through Naomi's pain to bless all of Israel through a king who, was in the, who, was, uh, who took after the Lord's own heart. So while the times and culture are evil, the Lord is working in the details in Naomi's life, not just for her, but for all of Israel. Consider that. That's incredible. This woman, who by all accounts has no real power, has no real influence, is a, mine, a small town... Apathrapha is a small part of Bethlehem, which is a small, small part of Israel. This is backwater land. Like, these are people of no import. And yet the Lord's going to orchestrate tragic circumstances in their life to redeem Israel. But that's not all. There's a bit of a postscript from Matthew 1, 1 through 5, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz and the father of Obed by Ruth. You see, not only does the Lord provide a king for Israel, through Naomi's suffering, he also provides a savior. Generations later, at a time that Naomi could have never foreseen, hundreds and hundreds of years, the Lord blesses the entire world through her pain. Through Jesus Christ, the ultimate redeemer. Jesus is born in the line of David, meaning Obed, meaning Boaz, meaning Ruth, meaning Naomi, and it all came together through Naomi's pain. This is the way that the Lord can sovereignly use our suffering and our pain for glorious purposes that we never see. He brings Christ into the world through the persistent love of a Moabite woman named Ruth in a small town in a place of no import. The blessing of the Lord was never just for Israel, it's for the whole world, and this blessing is Jesus. Jesus Christ comes to save sinners and he comes in the line of Ruth. And for those of us that are in desperate need of redemption, of a redeemer, of someone to come and spread their wings over us, this is what Christ offers to us. He offers to redeem us from our own sin, from our own failings, our own flaws. He died on a cross so he could pay that price to redeem us, to pay the blood price, to rescue us from our own Sins, but he doesn't stay dead. He rose again, and all we have to do is respond in faith and trust. This is our Redeemer who calls everyone everywhere to put their trust in him. And he comes in the line of Ruth from the pain of Naomi. But the best is still to come. You see, for Naomi, the, she saw some of the blessing that would come through her trials but she didn't see the ultimate blessing. She didn't see Christ. And for us, in the same way, the best is yet 
to come, Revelation 21, 1 through 4, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Likewise, Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. There is a blessing that is coming for the Christian that far outstrips anything that, came, anything that we can possibly imagine because Jesus is the greater Boaz. He's the greater redeemer. He can redeem us fully from our sin. Jesus is the greater Ruth because he persists in loving us beyond all imagining, beyond all sense. There's nothing that makes it worldly wise for Christ to lay down the throne of heaven to be born in a barn and die on our behalf. And yet he does because he's the Messiah. He's the greater Ruth. And Jesus brings the greater promise. Not just a family name, not just a land, a piece of land in Israel, not just descendants that will be named for him. He brings an eternal, he brings an eternal name for his people to be co-heirs with him forever, ruling over heaven. He's the greater Boaz because he's got a greater redemption. He's the greater Ruth because he loves more. He has a greater promise because he's a future with him forever because Christ is the greater redeemer. So while we wait for him to make good on that promise, we hope in Christ because the best is yet to come. We plan while trusting in providence. We proceed in faith. We prepare for the plot twist that life is going to throw us. But we are a hopeful people because we know the Lord provides redemption. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do worship you as a God who keeps his promises, who blesses us in ways that we can't even see and won't see until we're with you forever. But until we see you face to face, Lord, give us strength and faith love and energy to persist in Christ's likeness in this life, and may we tell others of your love for your people. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.